Well, good morning. Um, my name is Ryan Moore, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you to bring God's word from the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 5. And just as has been stated by Darwin and by Jack there, um, I found this quote, uh, this, someone sent this to me from a friend, to sort of just be uh, true for the moment that we're in. Um, it just says this, congratulations to the astronauts that left Earth today. Good choice. <laughs> and I say that uh, because I want, uh, I want our people, as has been said in this service, to know that uh, we are heavy-hearted for what is going on, and it's hard sometimes to, to come in and do a job like this with what is going on around us when we don't have necessarily the words to, uh, to, 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 to give for the uh, pain and the suffering that we feel like not just this country is feeling, experiencing, uh, but our people as well, but we acknowledge that. And so I offer that uh, as well, um, a, a, along with what Darwin and Jack have said, and um, we'll be in prayer, prayer for you uh, as we work through this, but be in prayer for us as well. Um, in light of that, let's turn to the book of Acts in chapter 5, and, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to meet us, uh, not just in this text, but where we are, uh, perhaps personally. As followers of Christ. So if you have your uh, bulletin printout or a Bible in front of you, we're going to be looking just uh, primarily at verses 1 to 16 in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, um, although we, you know, we kind of are sort of taking Acts chapter by chapter. But let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men uh, rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, and so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from, from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, 
and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come to this place where we are, where we find ourselves with heavy hearts of what is going on around us. And so I ask and pray that your spirit would, would direct our eyes and gaze to you at this moment, the place where our hearts only do find true rest. Uh, would you do that for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the, the purpose of beauty? Uh, have you ever asked the, that question, you know, why, why does beauty even exist? Um, maybe this just shows how weird I can be at times, but it, it is a question that I have thought of and thought about over and over. What is the purpose of beauty? Why does it exist? Whether it's in a landscape, perhaps uh, a building or architecture, maybe in, in artwork, paintings, uh, or just in a person, what is its purpose? And the only answer that I uh, have really found that has some way satisfied me is from um, Tim Keller, who said that the purpose of beauty is rest. It's a beautiful thing. Beauty in itself, it actually has the ability, and it does bring us rest. And he goes on to say that this is why, for example, people go to beautiful places for vacation. And, of course, this is relative, subjective. But maybe it's the beach for you. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe you find yourself uh, going back to these places because that's where you find beauty. And what that beauty is doing to you is, is it is bringing you rest. Uh, but, but the opposite of this is, is also true, isn't it? You know, polluted environments, chaotic places, my home at times, or perhaps watching what is going on in the cities around this country, right? The brokenness of this world does what it brings unrest. It brings exhaustion. It brings stress upon us. But the purpose of beauty is rest. And the problem, though, the problem with beauty, and it's not really with beauty, it's with us, is that our hearts, right, they get addicted to beauty. They get addicted to beautiful things, to beauty itself. And, and, and in doing so, we forget what the point of all beauty is, and that is to point uh, itself to Jesus Christ, to point us to Jesus, the ultimate place of rest for our souls. And so what do we do as Christians, as the church even, when our hearts find themselves replacing the beauties of Christ with the beauties of this world? Well, that's what's happening here in chapter 5. In this text, as we read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they have found beauty in something more than Christ. And that has brought hypocrisy now and deception into the church. And as a result, uh, there is a threat now to both the progress and the purpose and the power of the gospel mission. Which is ultimately what? as we've been seen in Acts, to proclaim Christ and to show him by the Holy Spirit as what more beautiful and believable than anything else in this world, which is to say that he is the place that we ultimately find our rest. So as we look at what Ananias and Sapphira have done, we will be asking, what can we do to restore the brokenness brought on by our own self-centeredness that we bring into the church? What can we do to restore that to the beauties of Jesus and his gospel and the work that he wants to do in our life as the church, as the gospel mission 
goes forward. And so to look at that, as you see there in your handout, we will look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we'll see how their hypocrisy and deception threaten the progress and the purpose and the beauty or the, the power of the gospel mission. So let's take that first one there, um, how uh, they threaten the progress of the gospel mission. And they threaten the progress of the gospel mission, as we read, through a simple act of deception and hypocrisy among God's people. First, just to be clear, what, what did Ananias and Sapphira actually do here, and why does it matter? Well, Ananias and Sapphira seem to have made a public promise to God's people to give the full proceeds of some land that they owned that they were going to sell, and they would bring those proceeds to the church. And so they do this, and they lay it at the feet of um, the apostles. And in so doing, they receive the reputation and the praise of being generous people. But what we find out is that this is not really what happened. What we find out in verse 2 is that both Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, they, they kept back proceeds from the sale. And that they only brought a portion of it uh, in that way, deceiving God's people and, and, and acting in, in, in an act of hypocrisy. And it's this verb kept back that we read about in verse 2 that helps us understand what is actually going on here. This verb for kept back actually means to misappropriate. It is the same verb that we see used in Joshua 7 when we look at the sin of Achan right after Israel has crossed the Jordan into Canaan, the promised land, to take Jericho. Briefly, when Israel was finally coming in to receive the promised land, um, their first mission was to take Jericho, but one thing that they must not do as they go in and take the city right, is to take any of its possessions for themselves. Right? No, no gold, no wealth, no animals, nothing, because all of Jericho, what belonged to the Lord, and it acted as a burnt offering to him. It was an act of judgment. So to take anything in that moment would not be to steal from Jericho, it would be to steal from the Lord himself. And Israel, Achan included in that, entered into this public covenantal agreement with the Lord before they went in. But what happens? The text tells us that Achan what kept back, <laughs> kept back some of the possessions of Jericho for himself and hid them under his tent. The text says that he coveted these things and took what belonged to the Lord. And this brought judgment upon him and his family, resulting in them being stoned to death. But this isn't all that happened, right? It didn't just bring judgment on Achan. Achan's sin actually cost all of Israel something. Right? It cost the lives of men in Israel who would go on to fight Ai, uh, the city of Ai, not knowing what Achan had done and thus not having the Lord to fight with them because the covenant had been broken. Um, Israel's reputation was now in question because of this. So the surrounding nations, if we remember, because of their defeat uh, at Ai after Jericho, which is ultimately a reflection of what? of the God that they worship, so much was at stake because Achan kept back a possession for himself when he had promised not to. So what's the parallel here then for, for Acts 5 as we look at this text? For Ananias and Sapphira to keep back or to misappropriate the money means they too entered in to some public promise or contract, which, which Luke does not provide for us here, to give the church the total amount from the sale that they, and, and they didn't. And instead they lied about it. It was to keep for themselves what they had promised 
to give to God when what ultimately belonged to him in the first place. This is what Ananias and Sapphira did. And why it matters is this act of deception and hypocrisy threatens the progress of the gospel mission at a crucial stage of its development, which is at its beginning. If you like the story of Joshua 7, this is another beginning in God's unfolding plan for redemption. In Joshua 7, Israel was in the beginning of fulfilling a promise God had made to them in receiving this land. But in Acts 5, it is the church that is beginning. And beginnings, as we all know, are crucial. How you set the cornerstone of a building determines what the direction and the progress of the entire thing. One of the first marriages that I conducted with a couple uh, illustrates this. Um, we did uh, three, or we did five or six weeks of, of premarital counseling together. We talked about all kinds of things. Uh, we, we talked about money, we talked about sex, we talked about roles in the house, children, I mean, everything that you could do to possibly turn over every stone and just see what is there. <clears throat> and, and it was a, a wonderful time, and, and the wedding came, and we were so excited to celebrate this marriage with them, and, and we remember celebrating and waving them off as they drove away to be married. Six months later, it was discovered that the groom had a pornography addiction that he had not told anyone. Now, that is going to threaten the progress of any marriage, no matter when that comes out. But beginnings, what, are more fragile when trust is so vulnerable. <clears throat> they made it and are happily married with kids today, I, I'm, I'm happy to say. But for a while, it wasn't certain whether they were going to make it or not. And what's the point? Beginnings are crucial. And in Acts chapter 5, the church is still just getting started. And in fact, we see in verse 11 that this is the first time that the word church is used by Luke in the book of Acts. And it's this act of deceit by Ananias and Sapphira that threatens its progress, which is why God acts in a way that rightfully so brings fear to all who hear about it. But like Israel and Joshua and now the church here in Acts, Jesus proves to be the protector of his people and his mission. It will go forward. It will not stop because it is of God and not of men that we see at the end of this chapter. But after all, as Luke tells us in verse 4, Ananias has not just lied to man, but he has lied to God himself, which means that to lie to God's people even, as we see, is the same as lying to God himself, which is a sobering first takeaway from this point this morning for those in the church. And we'll see this more clearly in the next point. But this is the first thing that we see here, that, that, that Ananias and Sapphira, what they bring into the church and their deception and hypocrisy is a threat to the progress of the gospel mission. But it's also a threat to the purpose of the gospel mission, which is the second point. What is this gospel mission, by the way? And we, we, we're going to hopefully uh, just continue to repeat and even in different ways uh, define the gospel mission, which, which ultimately is the church today, right? But at its core, it is to do what the apostles and the believers of the church in this day have been praying to do, which is to speak the word of God in boldness, specifically to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we have seen already up to this point, and to proclaim that only in the name of Jesus can one be saved. That's, that's just in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 12. In other words, the purpose of the gospel mission is ultimately what to reflect 
the beauties and the wonders of Christ by his spirit. This is the job of the Holy Spirit, after all, as the Spirit applies salvation to our lives that we might reflect Christ to the world in the way that we love one another, in the way that we uh, extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to one another, just as Christ has done to us. Hypocrisy, though, and deception, among other things, of course, what they threaten the purpose of this mission in that way, because it's not reflecting Christ, it is reflecting a different gospel altogether. And this is the seriousness of what is happening inside the church here in Acts 5. And according to Peter, this sin of deceit and hypocrisy from Ananias and Sapphira no longer reflects Christ, but it actually reflects Satan, the adversary. Notice what Peter says to Ananias in verse 3 there. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Peter is saying that what Ananias has done is now at odds with the Holy Spirit. Ananias is no longer in step with the work of the Spirit to reflect Christ in his life. He is instead in step with the adversary of this world. And because of this, it threatens the purpose of the gospel mission by what he is reflecting to those around him. Uh, It wasn't until I got married that I learned Uh, that there's such a thing as skinny mirrors. Um, Ada let me in on this one. I had no idea. I just thought every time I showed up to a hotel, I just looked amazing. Um, Like somehow on the drive or the travel there, I lost, managed to lose 10 pounds, uh, regardless of the two to three stops at McDonald's along the way. Um, Now I know, um, now I know because of skinny mirrors, thanks to my wife, that for years I would run out into that beach and do so with a false sense of confidence. Um, But thankfully, I have a wife who will be honest with me uh, today. No need for skinny mirrors anymore. Ananias and Sapphira, I'd like to suggest they're functioning in this way. They're functioning as skinny mirrors to the people of God, and that they are reflecting something false to the world about who Christ is and who his people are. They are reflecting in their hearts a different gospel, but what the people of God are seeing in them looks great. It looks great. Like, look at this wonderful family giving all the proceeds of this land that they publicly promised to sell and give because they love Jesus. Looks great. But it's a lie. It's actually a Satan. And in this way, they are reflecting a different gospel than that of Christ and their hypocrisy and deceit. And this threatens the purpose of the gospel mission to reflect the beauties and the wonders of Jesus But notice where this threat is coming from. And this is part of Luke's point here. It's not coming from outside the church. It is coming from inside the church. It is worth noting how severe then that God's punishments and actions are towards those inside the church uh, who threaten the purpose of his gospel mission, who, who attempt to lie to God's people as opposed to those outside the church. In the second half of this chapter, we won't get to it, right? But it's Peter and John who are preaching, and they are arrested and put in jail, and we get to see this wonderful picture of how God is truly in control of this mission. Like, it's going to happen. And so they release John, or John and Peter from prison uh, to go preach again. All right, they're brought before the, the high priest because they were told not to do this. The, the high priests are so angry, they want to kill them. Right? 
And, and, and all that happens, and actually the text records this as being a success, is that they are let go with only a be- beating, charged not to speak again. In fact, the apostles rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now look, if I'm just reading this at face value, it would seem that the biggest threat to the purpose of the gospel mission are the powers and the authorities outside of the church. But does God handle them the way that he has handled Ananias and Sapphira here? Why doesn't God just clear a path here, right? Why does he just drop all those in in, in places of authority who, who would attempt to bring an end to this gospel mission? Why does he even allow the apostles to be put into prison for the first pl- in the first place, let alone to suffer at the hands of others. And those are great questions with answers for another day, but this text should force us and force those inside the church to pause and to consider that possibly the greatest threat to the purpose of the gospel mission today isn't those outside of the church, it's me. God is far more concerned with how those inside the church are behaving than what those outside, that is actually those in here that pose the greatest threat to his purposes and those out there. And why? Because it is the church friends who has been bought by the blood of Jesus who profess Christ and his gospel, not the powers and authorities and governments out there. We are the ones entrusted with reflecting the very grace that we believe in and have been given. And this should sober us and cause us then to reflect just where we think the real threat to God's mission is and why. Issues like church discipline then become so important because they they determine and they correct and they they change uh, how we are reflecting what is and what isn't the gospel. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote to the question, what is wrong with the world? He simply said, I am. For every minute Christians spent concerned about what is happening out there, which is important, don't hear what I'm not saying. What might happen if we spent five minutes, though, on what is happening in here? For every minute out there, what is happening in our hearts? Think of what that might do to the witness of the church to this world, which gets to the last point, the power of the gospel mission. We've seen that the progress because of Ananias and Sapphira, what they brought into the church, what they, not, well, what they through their hypocrisy and deception, right, they, they, have, uh, they have become a threat to the progress and to the purpose of the, of the gospel mission, which is to reflect Jesus to the world. We also see, lastly, that they are a threat to the power of that gospel mission. And the power of the gospel mission for the church comes in our witness to Jesus. And his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. The sin of hypocrisy and deception that Ananias and Sapphira commit here, there threatens the power of their witness because what it suffers their credibility. The first thing hypocrisy does in the church is it tells someone, you can't trust me. And that destroys their credibility and their message. But where does this threat come from in Ananias and Sapphira? It actually comes from their heart. Where all hypocrisy originates. And what hypocrisy and deception show us is that our hearts are divided when this shows up between Christ and something else. Peter says to Ananias there in verse 4, we're just really honing in on this dialogue. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Or why have you deliberately put into motion this act? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. 
to the Holy Spirit, what Peter is saying is this was a premeditated plan from the beginning. And it is backed up and affirmed when Sapphira comes home and Peter asks her there in verse 8, tell me whether y'all sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Here's her opportunity, right, to say I'm sorry, to repent. But she doesn't, at least Luke doesn't record that, so we assume it doesn't happen. And Peter says to her, how is it that you agree together to test the Lord, to hold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. This was something they did on purpose, which means, friends, that their hearts were divided. And what does that mean? They loved something else more than Jesus. Something more be- was more beautiful to them than Christ, which is to say something promised to bring rest to their souls, and they held on to it at all costs. It could have been the security that this money would have brought them, the wealth uh, that they had, or that, that it could have brought them. It could have been the reputation that they, that they wanted so badly within the church to be perceived as, the, as these generous people. Whatever it was, their hearts clung to that over Christ to the point that they decided to deliberately lie and deceive the church in order to have it. And the Bible calls those things that we hold on to uh, and that, that we give more weight in our lives to than Jesus, the Bible calls those things idols. And idols are the things in this world that we go to that we think promise to give us rest. That's why your heart wants them. Idols are what we find the most beautiful in this world because of what we think that they will give us, but all they do is destroy. Ada came across this article this week um, out of Bolivia uh, where these three boys um, came across this black widow spider and they allowed themselves to get bit by it because they thought that it would give them Spider-Man-like powers. Um, from the Telemundo, uh, their Boliv- these, these three Bolivian boys landed themselves in the hospital after enticing the black widow spider to bite them in hopes of gaining superpowers like Spider-Man. Now, one reason I share this story is because I know uh, that the boys are okay. They were released. But what I want you to think about But I want you to think about this story in terms of what idols, I want you to think about this story, excuse me, in terms of what idols do. We, we think, right, that they give us power, that they give us wealth, they give us happiness, they give us life, they give us rest, but in reality, they offer death. Ananias and Sapphira come to the apostles divided. Their hearts think that rest is truly found in this money and our reputation but they have no idea the destruction that will come to them from what their hearts have really grabbed a hold of. Because all it does is bring death to us, and while at the same time diminishing the credibility and the power of their witness. And nothing, and and you guys, you, you know this, nothing does this faster than hypocrisy and deception within the church. It kills the witness of the church. 
when people see that the church is divided uh, and loves its politics, right, more than the gospel or their neighbor, that hypocrisy threatens the power of its witness. When people see that the church loves its comfort, is divided in this way, it loves its comfort and wealth more than the marginalized and the poor, right, that hypocrisy threatens the power of its witness. When people see that the sexual ethic inside the church is no different than the sexual ethic outside the church, that hypocrisy threatens the power of its, wit- of its witness. And what drives that hypocrisy, as it does for Ananias and Sapphira, is a divided heart, a love for beauty, not what beauty points to. And while God stops Ananias and Sapphira here in this text, the normative practice is for God to hand us over and to let us have what our hearts truly want, which is why F.F. Bruce actually calls what happens here to Ananias and Sapphira an act of mercy. An act of mercy. If you're worried, let's just clear, clarify this before we end, if you're worried about being struck down because of your greed, you're missing the text here. You should be worried about what that greed will turn you into over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What it will do to your heart. What you are holding on to. What are you holding on to? What is your heart divided over that is destroying you while at the same time a threat to the power of the witness of this gospel mission of this church? This is what Luke is pointing us to. Because in stark contrast to what is all over this section, Luke gives us a snapshot of what the oneness of the church looks like. And that is what we're seeing in the summary statements at the end of chapter 2 and at the end of chapter 4, right as this story begins. How they all lived and had all things in common. When we read that, right, in in my years of ministry, I've never had anybody come up and say, man, this is, that that doesn't look attractive, (laughs) right? Like, we're, we're all drawn into these scenes. They are so powerful. And why? Because their hearts are not divided. They are so full of Christ that material things in in this situation no longer matter as they once did. And it's that type of authenticity, right, in their living that drew people to their message. In other words, the church offered beauty to the world in a way that the world had never seen it. That's That's what Luke is showing us. And the world around them believed it because of the what? The voluntary nature of their living. They did it freely. Notice what Peter says there in verse 4. While it, the property, St. Ananias, remained unsold, it was yours. Like, why is he going after this? Why does he stay here for so long? He's telling them that, look, you didn't even have to sell it. There was no moral principle here. There's, no, there's no, nothing wrong with holding private property in the early church. It was yours to do with what you wanted to. Peter goes on to say, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? See, Peter is acknowledging the voluntary nature of giving what one owned uh, to the church. No one told you that you had to sell it. And if you sold it, no one told you that you had to give the proceeds to the church. What's the point? point is that it's voluntary. And this is what is causing people to be drawn in to hear and to listen uh, the gospel message of the church because what is more compelling to the gospel mission, what is more powerful than when believers voluntarily, for example, give what everyone else around them holds so dear. 
because Christ is truly enough for them. The oneness of their hearts towards Christ led to this countercultural, authentic living by the Spirit that created such a powerful witness. People looked at it and said, that's beautiful. I want that. And what are they looking at? They're looking at Jesus being reflected in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the kindness of his people. And it's making people say, I want that. It's when our hearts are divided because we think Christ isn't enough. That hypocrisy and deceit creep in and threaten the power and the credibility of that witness and ultimately that mission. So what can we do when that happens? Trying to land the plane here. What can we do uh, when, when this type of deception and hypocrisy come into the church? What can we do to restore Right, the progress, right? the purpose even, and the power of the gospel mission that, that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and that the Holy Spirit is bringing about, regardless of whether we are involved or not, but invites us to participate. What can we do? Because guess what? Surprise, surprise, all of us, every one of us in the church is a threat to the progress and the purpose and the power of the gospel mission. This is not a story about, wow, look at how bad those people are. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like them. All of us are threats because of our self-centeredness and sin. What can we do? We can and must repent. We must be a people, a repentant people, a repentant church. This is the takeaway for Luke. Nothing makes the church more attractive, more beautiful, more countercultural, while at the same time building trust and credibility in its message than when the church is visibly repentant. When Christians repent of their hypocrisy, the damage done to the progress and the purpose and the power of the church, of the gospel mission, isn't just restored it actually has the potential to cause the church to flourish in new ways. And if you've ever repented before a friend or a spouse, and it is scary to do so, I get it. But anyone you've heard, when you, if you've ever done this, you have experienced this firsthand, that the church flourishes when it is repentant. And here's the thing, this is never intended to stop for us. The church is never intended uh, to stop being a repentant church until we go home to be with the Lord, until the Lord comes back to be with us forever. Which is why Luther says all of life is repentance. So you want to lend credibility and power to your witness. You want to reflect the gospel of Christ to your friends, to this world. You want to see the church grow by causing others to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable then anything else, be a repentant people, Luke is telling us. Be a re repentant community. All of us are threats to the progress, purpose, and power of the gospel mission. All of us are hypocrites and deceived. But in our repentance, people don't see us, right? They get to see Jesus. In our repentance, Christ is reflected in spite of our sin. Our witness is made powerful by his grace. And the church becomes what she was called to be, a place of brokenness and beauty place where true rest can be found and the gospel 
of Jesus and what drives this repentance in us in any Christian and in any church is believing that Jesus truly is enough. More so than your money, more so than your comfort, than your status, whatever, whatever else would bid for your heart's affection. Jesus was not enough for Ananias and Sapphira in this moment, but our hearts are no different. So what is it, uh, what, what is it that we have repented of recently? What does repentance look like in our lives? Is it something that you are doing regularly? If not, does that concern you? Where is your heart divided? Where is hypocrisy and deceit showing up in your life and thus reflecting allegiance to a different gospel other than Christ? Who, maybe more than anything, needs to see your repentance the most? What will drive our repentance is truly believing that Jesus is enough. And Jesus only becomes enough for us when we are convinced of his love for us and that his gospel is true. Let me leave us with this. We know that Jesus' love for us is true and we know that his gospel uh, is real because of the cross. Because of the cross, which means what? That Jesus did not keep himself back. From us, but he gave himself voluntarily for you because he loves you. What will be a challenge for the early church moving forward, what was a challenge for Israel, and what is certainly a challenge for the church today, is not always that how, how our hearts hold on to the material possessions that, that become so beautiful in our eyes, our wealth, our comfort, whatever it is. It's actually in the way that our whole hearts can hold on to Jesus. And keep him back. What is the treasure that has been given to us. And keep him back from those that we have promised to give him to. To be witnesses of. The sin of the church today is that we sometimes think Jesus only belongs to us. So we keep him for ourselves. But thankfully, Jesus did not keep himself back from you. Did he? Jesus did not say, I will not go to them and become like them and suffer and die so that they might have my forgiveness and taste in the goodness of my grace. Instead, Jesus what? Gave himself to us and he did it freely. He did it voluntarily. That's how you know he loves you. That's how you know you can trust him. That is how the beauties of Jesus capture our own hearts and our repentance. What drives our repentance is knowing that Jesus is truly enough. Is he enough for you this morning? Will he be enough for you tomorrow? May we testify to this truth, to this reality as the church, right, with a life of repentance until that day we find ourselves face to face with all that the beauties of this world pointed to. It is Christ himself. Will we live and rest in him forever? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. It's difficult. It's hard. It's hard to see what happens here to Ananias and Sapphira. So I, I pray that, that what has been proclaimed here this morning is that it might be a warning to us, to those in the church, that we might be a people, a repentant people, 
of the, of the ways that our hearts gravitate toward the things of this world, hoping to find rest in them, that you and your mercy and your kindness would, would, would convict us of this, would show us and lead us the way to where true beauty and rest is found, that is only in Jesus. Would you make us and continue to make us a people where repentance is all of life in us? That it is something that we talk about, but more, maybe more importantly, that it is something that Fort Worth Press is known for, being a people of repentance. We ask this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.